Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. John, you may recall that over the summer we had Chris Gimino on the pod to talk about the upcoming NFL season, and I told him I'd plunk down $2 on Joe Burrow at 200-1 to 1 to win MVP, and he told me all I was doing was making myself $2 poorer. Uh, and, and he was right. Uh, but I'm pleased to say that I'm not the world's most insane NFL long shot better. ESPN's David Payne Purdom reported on Monday that last week, there were still people in Vegas betting on the New York Jets to win the Super Bowl. Uh, some were tiny for $2 or $5. One was for $40 uh, at 5,000 to 1 odds. <laughs> I know it sounds alluring, a, a chance to turn $40 into $200,000. And, you know, maybe before the season, betting on the Jets on a weird hunch is defensible. Uh, but after seeing how bad they are, they can't win. They can't even cover. Uh, John, can can we replace the cliche about the definition of insanity being doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result with simply betting on the 2020 Jets? Uh, not just 2020, you know. There's, <laughs> right. there's a popular, now nearly retired local sports radio broadcaster in the New York City area. Uh, he's old enough to remember Joe Namath's Super Bowl title for the Jets and all the subsequent 50 years of hell. <laughs> Jets haven't been back to the big game since, of course. Right. Um, and whenever some Jets debacle is mentioned on the show, his instinctive fallback comment is the pain. Oh, the pain. <laughs> and uh, it's actually pretty entertaining because it's not something scripted and, you know, by a focus group. It's uh, That's just how he uh, handles the uh, pain. Um, so in April, with no real sports thanks to the pandemic, uh, WFAN even ran a Joe Benigno bracket of pain, April Madness mm. tournament, in which poor Joe had to go round by round choosing the, which is the more brutal of these two defeats that he remembers, <laughs> uh, which, of course, then leads that defeat into the next round and more pain. And eventually he's got some of the most painful uh, experiences ever, and he's got to pick which one is even more painful than the other. So so all that said, your borough pick and his dopey Jets pick, uh, assuming at affordable prices, it's a, about as painless as one minute after stubbing your toe. You know, so <laughs> okay. I think if a Jets fan can get that ticket and frame it, that's a gag gift for a buddy for life that I think is tough to top. 
That's a good point. There, there, there is some upside there, I suppose. But, you know, this is a team whose odds to go 0-16 dropped from like plus 750 to just plus 300 a couple of days ago. And then meanwhile, people are betting on them to win the Super Bowl. You know, people love a lottery style long shot, of course. Um, I'm sure that that perfectly timed St. Louis Blues bet last year inspired yeah. a few people to want to pick the right team at the right time. But if you want to bet $40 on a long shot, I'm sure even you would agree, John, uh, parlay hater that you are, that a crazy 13-game parlay has a better shot at, at hitting than the Jets winning the Super Bowl. Oof, that's so close. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're both impossible, so uh, who's to say? Uh, I, I don't know. I, 13 team, I'd be tempted to take the Jets. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> But I'm not thinking either. Right. Well, I'll tell you this uh, about that 0-16 bet. If uh, if Sam Darnold was out for the year and Flacco was definitely going to be their quarterback the rest of the way, I'd probably lock in that, that 0-16 bet. But with, with Darnold, uh, who might even be coming back this week, uh, I'm staying away. You know, they won't win the Super Bowl. I'm sure of that. But I, I do kind of think they'll win one game. Well, if they fire Adam Gates, they'll definitely win one game. But <laughs> if they don't, um, these players, uh, I don't know. I get the feeling that they uh, are are putting this all on the coach. So they're not going to be taking it as personally if they keep losing because they figure it just makes him look worse. And they're pretty much locked in. They'll get another coach next year. So as long as he's there, I don't know if they have the uh, extra oomph. I mean, they're terrible anyway. So it's right. not like uh, <laughs> you know trying real hard and they'll win six games. It's not going to happen. But right. uh, they, they would win one, I think. <laughs> okay. So ne- neither of us are jumping on the 0-16 now. No. Okay. <laughs> not quite. Okay. All right. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 114 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 113 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Just tap the subscribe button. It's free, which is to say it'll cost you $2 less than a no-hope $2 bet. There you go. All right. Uh, coming up a little later in the show, Eric, we're going to be joined by British election wagering expert Albert Tapper. Uh, he's going to share his insights from across the pond as we sit just 12 days away from the presidential election here in America. Uh, we'll talk to Albert about why the betting odds don't match the polls, how open Americans are really to betting on politics and more. Uh, but first, it's been a for once typically busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Our first news story is a follow-up to our first news story from last week, where we left you on a cliffhanger, having started the conversation about September sports betting handle without knowing New Jersey or Pennsylvania's numbers yet. Those came out on Thursday and Friday, respectively, and as expected, Records were set in both states. New Jersey handled $748.6 million in bets, easily breaking the record the Garden State set the month before. And in Pennsylvania, the handle number was $462.8 million, nearly $100 million more than the previous month. The big story within the story in Pennsylvania was the performance of Barstool Sportsbook in its first partial month as it came in third place behind only FanDuel and DraftKings in about half a month. Interestingly, thanks to sign-up bonuses and other promos, Barstool Sportsbook actually lost money in September. 
In New Jersey, meanwhile, the big news, other than the record sports betting handle, is that total gaming revenue in the state was up year over year, despite casinos being limited to 25% capacity. Online casino games generated $87.6 million in New Jersey in September, uh, and they hit a state record $57 million in Pennsylvania. Uh, John, what numbers stand out to you, and any early predictions for what October holds in store? Well, what stands out to me is I hit the under on Captain Jack and Alfonso's New Jersey revenue prediction. But yep. did I beat yours, too? I forget if you had one. Well, so it's so it's a little tricky there uh, yeah. that I I took the over on their poll. So so you beat me on that. But I did really well in my article that ran uh, on October 13th. I'll, uh, I have the numbers here. Uh, I'll, I'll, so, yeah, I'll, I'll interrupt your response to pat myself on the back uh, for a moment for, for these <laughs> sure. numbers. Uh, I had New Jersey at 744 million and it was 748.6. So I almost nice. nailed that one exactly. And I had Pennsylvania at 486.5, which was fairly close to the 462.8. So I did really well with those predictions. Um, I think uh, before last week's pod, I let Captain Jack and Alfonso convince me I was coming in too low. Uh, so I let them get in my head a little bit. I should have ignored them and stuck with my initial numbers. But yeah, your exactly. your, your underpick was was absolutely correct. Okay, but there were some other things I noticed too. Um, yeah, I wrote a story a couple of weeks ago, uh, NJ on OnlineGambling.com, on a long winter ahead for Atlantic City casinos and whether online casino gaming and perhaps an increase to 50% capacity inside casinos. Could that keep them all afloat? There's nine of them in Atlantic City now. Uh, well, the casinos were basically even August, September 2020 versus August, September 2019, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Uh, assuming online casino play keeps churning out at this steady 80 to 90 million a month for the casinos, and, and why not? It's done that for about five months in a row. Uh, it wasn't until I researched that article and then saw the September numbers that I realized, yes, they, they could be okay. But Atlantic County needs more on-site casino jobs returning to contribute to the local economy. So you don't you don't just want uh, online casino to explode and then oh, who cares about the the brick and mortar? Uh, everybody in the county cares about brick and mortar because it affects the local economy. Uh, and finally, I've I've had enough respect for the. Philly and Pittsburgh sports fan and betting markets to expect the Garden State, that's New Jersey, don't laugh if you've never been here, uh, to have to take a back seat eventually to your Keystone State. Uh, but if the extra 5 million or so people pretty much live between those two cities, and I've driven across Pennsylvania more than a dozen times, well, maybe they mostly aren't gamblers. So New Jersey can keep this kingpin status a while longer, perhaps? Yeah, it's it's looking that way. The gap is still pretty wide, you know, it's set, what, 748 versus 462. It's it, Yeah, it's not like like it's close enough that we think Pennsylvania is going to overtake New Jersey at some point during this football season or anything like that. Doesn't doesn't look that way. Um, I should add also that not only did Barstool lose money in Pennsylvania, but actually DraftKings did, too, for the month of September. Um, the Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board breaks out money spent on promos and such. They don't do that in the New Jersey numbers, but one can assume similar amounts are, are being given back in New Jersey also. And so, you know, several of these books uh, across both states and, and other states as well are trying so hard to get customers, at least during this first month of football season, that I would imagine uh, quite a few books are actually coming out in the red for September, despite the record handle numbers we're seeing. Yeah, I'm starting to think that maybe 
you know, the Amish and Mennonite communities and Barstool are not going to be a great fit. I don't know if that's really culturally going to uh, work for them. So, uh, yeah, I think New Jersey is going to be on top for a while. All right. Yeah. The, 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 the Amish do not make up a huge percentage of <laughs> Pennsylvania, but, but you are right that in, in that middle part of the state, they're probably on the whole, not quite sports betting crazy uh, at this point. <laughs> um, all right. That first story was all about numbers. Our second story is different. It involves controversy and drama and the human elements of sports betting. Last week, VEASAN host Gil Alexander, a veteran gambling media personality, went public with a dispute he was having with the Westgate Superbook in Las Vegas over his bet on Iga Swiatek to win the French Open. Alexander said he bet her at several sports books in town early in the year before the French Open was postponed due to COVID, and Swiatek went on to win the tournament. Alexander says all of the other books paid him, but not Westgate, where he bet $1,000 on her at 30 to 1. Westgate's rules said bets would be voided if the tournament was not played within eight days of its scheduled date. And it wasn't. It got bumped back to September 27th to October 11th. So Alexander just gets his $1,000 back, not the other 30000 he believes he's entitled to. This has led to a debate in the sports gambling community between what the fine print says and what our friend Captain Jack Andrews has called the spirit of the bet. I'm working on an article on this now. I actually spoke at length with Jay Cornegay of Westgate on Wednesday night. And one thing I'll note here is that the first thing he did was clarify that it's not fine print. It's what he said was rule number one in the same size typeface as everything else. Um, In any case, there seems to be a legitimate divide between those who think the circumstances of the bet changed and Alexander should have checked with the Westgate whether the bet was voided before the tournament began and those who think Westgate is free-rolling him, refusing to pay winners while trusting that losers won't know to come get their refunds. Some say if you're honoring NBA and NHL bets made before COVID, you should honor French Open bets as well, while some say it's apples and oranges. John, where do you fall on this? Uh, Should Alexander get paid? Did Westgate do enough to announce the cancellation of the wagers? And does this make a case for doing as much of your betting online as possible so you can check the wager status quickly and easily at any time? Well, it's funny because I, I, on my refrigerator, I have about a you know ten month old uh, Masters uh, twenty dollar bet on Xander Shoffley to win at you know twenty six to one or whatever it was or twenty to one. And heretofore, what I've been worried about most is that um, the ticket is so old that the uh, barcode is kind of fading away. <laughs> and I'm thinking if he does win, I'm not positive they're going to be able to uh, pay me out. But now I got this to worry about. Um, I would say one difference between uh, NBA, NHL, and tennis and golf is tennis and golf. Golfer played outside, and particularly, I think more so golf. You have um, the Masters being played in November uh, instead of uh, the spring. The conditions are a bit different. The wind mm-hmm. is going to be somewhat different. The wet, the temperature is going to be somewhat different. Um, the condition of the greens and the speed of the greens is going to be a little different. So, in theory, I can see someone saying, "Well, it's not exactly the same event." Uh, tennis, I mean, I don't ever recall a lot of wind at the French Open, but uh, uh, you know, in theory, <laughs> that's different. But it's a tough one. I'm not sure if this is practical, but. I was thinking it'd be nice if a better with a chance to win at least, say, 10000 on a single bet could get a notification as soon as the bet was off. But I suspect that runs into the same issue that COVID-19 contact tracing has. I mean, it's great to find out if someone you just had close contact with tested positive so you can take proper precautions. Like if you go to the Meadowlands racetrack these days, you have to fill out that whole form. And if they did have a breakout beyond just internal employees, which they did have, um, they could contact you. Oh, you were there Friday night and 27 people got it. 
but it's more likely that never happens on a widespread scale because you've just given out all sorts of information to a private business. In this case, one which would love to know exactly who's betting a grand or more on such a long shot, by the way. Right. And um, it's not likely, you know, that something's going to happen. So. My other observation is that most high-profile cases like this get announced as settled for publicity reasons, while the little guy is never going to get that same break. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting uh, point there that the the, the high-profile element of it and whether uh, Westgate would be motivated uh, to clean this one up for publicity purposes. But I, I don't want to spoil my article, but uh, Jay had a had a pretty strong take uh, on that. But I'll save that for the article. I do hope to speak to Gil Alexander and give him a chance to respond to some of the things Jay told me. Because my opinions on this are currently shaded by the fact that I've heard Jay tell the Westgate side. So I probably mm-hmm. shouldn't be too opinionated here on the podcast. My article, which I'm aiming to publish next Monday, will hopefully cover it from all angles. But the two big takeaways for me that I think I'm are, are impartial takeaways are A, Keeping track of your bets in an app is a good thing. I I fully support placing all your bets online if you have access. Uh, Not everyone does, and obviously not everyone prefers to bet that way, but it does make it easier to to check on this sort of stuff. And B, and this applies to to you and your master's ticket, John, uh, if you're unsure ask you can uh you know you can call that sports book or email that sports book mm-hmm. and find out what's the rule is this play uh do i should i get a refund the next time i'm there if i want to still bet shoffly do i need to come in and rebet him that sort of thing um yeah. you know especially when you have a thousand dollar bet that would pay thirty thousand yeah. dollars if that's significant money to you call or email the sports book before the tournament begins it, it can't hurt to ask yeah absolutely i, I think um it, this if nothing else, this could be a lesson learned. I think the more publicity that this gets, the better, because uh, we don't know if we're going to run into some other issues in 2021 or 2022. And, you know, let, let's have everybody at least aware of what the scenario is so they, they know what's going on. Because, uh, like I said, this is a tough one, though. I, I can see both sides. Yeah. And in whichever side you're on, you kind of feel bad for the spot that the other side is in. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and but I agree with what you just said, that, you know, the the publicity of this bringing awareness to it is really good that, you know, uh, even just with this specific situation, if there's someone out there who bet on the French Open earlier in the year or, or bet on the Masters uh, and hasn't thrown out their ticket, now they know they can go back and get a refund on that losing French Open bet if they still have the ticket, uh, that that sort of thing. That, that would be a, a positive public service to come out of this. Um, I, I do think, and this to, to tie in with what you were saying about how the circumstances for a tournament like the Masters have clearly changed, I think that Westgate's rule here is the correct rule that, you know, the tournament that was played in September and October, the French Open, the odds on the players had to have changed from earlier in the year because the field got weaker due to COVID opt outs. Uh, Some people who were playing well early in the year were playing less well in the fall and vice versa. Um, To use my favorite sport of boxing as an example, if I had placed a bet on a theoretical Floyd Mayweather-Manny Pacquiao fight in, say, 2011, when there was a lot of momentum for it, and some books were offering odds, even though the fight wasn't signed, and then that fight happens in 2015, as it did, <laughs> that bet shouldn't count. It's just not the same fight four years later. And and with boxing, the rules usually say, you know, must take place in that calendar year, something like that. Yeah. So with, with the French Open, it's basically a week of delay that uh, that Westgate was allowing, anything more, and it all resets. We've seen it with football this year. A game gets postponed from Sunday 
just one day to Monday or two days to Tuesday. Uh, and many books are refunding those bets and you have to bet it all over again. Um, and just one last example is that I got unlucky on that with a baseball parlay. I had a three teamer at about eight to one odds. One game got rained out and postponed by one day. I won my two teamer at a mere plus 175 odds. The next day, my third team won, but it didn't count for me. Uh, uh. But but I knew that could happen. Those are the rules. It sucks. But, mm. you know, that's that's a part of sports betting. Yeah, the awareness is, uh, is, is the key. So uh, hopefully we'll come out ahead on this thing, however it works out. Right. Okay, for our final story this week, we go back to New Jersey and Pennsylvania. In both states, casinos began dealing poker again over the past week. Pennsylvania's Mohegan Sun Pocono and Mount Airy Casino Resort both opened their poker rooms last Friday after about a seven-month closure, and Borgata in Atlantic City followed suit this Wednesday. Tables are limited to seven players. Not all tables in the room are being used. There are plexiglass dividers between seats and so forth. But the casinos are giving it a try as casinos in Florida and elsewhere have been for a few months now. Whereas once poker seemed like the most dangerous possible casino game during a pandemic, we did learn a few months ago that surface transmission of COVID is not a major concern, so the touching of chips and cards is not the huge problem it was initially thought to be. Still, whether playing poker using these safety measures is truly safe remains to be seen. Interestingly, Pennsylvania's most popular poker room at Parks Casino hasn't reopened yet, which looks like confirmation of what a small part of overall casino revenue poker provides. Uh, Anyway, John, do you see poker as any more dangerous than blackjack or roulette? And do you see all of the remaining poker rooms opening back up over the next couple of months? Or will some casinos decide it just isn't worth it, even if the state governments are allowing it? Well, it definitely helps me having been to those 13 New York, New Jersey, Connecticut casinos uh, in the past three or four months and seeing what's going on. Uh, I think the industry's handled it well. I think poker was potentially the biggest uh, problem. And so they hesitated on that. And they they went to craps, which surprised me a little bit. But um, I could see it worked. I mean, it's not ideal. And, you know, I, I tweeted out some photos. A lot of people like, oh, forget it. I'm not doing that. You know, right. with the plexiglass between each player and everything else. Um, but, you know, there's some doing it. And then now we know. Yeah, I think we can do it pretty safely. So what I was reminding of in working a recent story is how little revenue poker brings in. I mean, I know it, but I'm reminded of it, you know, that at this point, it's less than 5% of the overall online casino revenue in Atlantic City, for example. So, you know, and now Borgata is the place to play poker in in Atlantic City, and that opened up on Wednesday this week. Uh, So it made sense for them to be the first and the biggest back. There are three or four other Atlantic City casinos that were offering poker at this time a year ago. But my utter speculation would be that maybe one of them reopens as well, uh, maybe on a very limited basis just to satisfy some of their biggest whales. But it won't be worth it for all those casinos in either state or in other states, too. Um, but I have a question for you. This is a mere seven-player poker table now. Is that a deal-breaker for you or for most fellow poker players you know? Um, No, I wouldn't say so. A lot of people like the shorter-handed games anyway, like online at a cash game table. There are nine-handed tables and there are six-handed tables, and some people uh, prefer the six-handed game because it moves faster. You get more action. You have to be a little more aggressive. It's a different, It's a different kind of game. So there are people who are good at nine-handed poker and not as good at six-handed poker and vice versa. Um, yeah. I, you know, I... For me, for me, the deal breaker is just doing it in person right now. Um, so, I mean, like I was thinking about the the safety risks uh, of poker versus, say, blackjack. 
I think with the plexiglass there, it's it's similar except for one key difference is if I want to play blackjack, I can play for 15 minutes and then go do something else. When you sit down to play poker, you're usually committing to a few hours or it's not really worth even driving to the casino. Uh, and that would worry me. Breathing that casino air, even behind plexiglass, for hours on end. You know, you wear a mask, you don't do anything stupid, you figure it's probably okay but still, I, I personally have no plans to play poker in a casino until, you know, there's a widely distributed vaccine uh, until we really reach that point. That's just but that's just me personally. For other people, it does seem reasonably safe, I guess. Um, but, yeah, nothing is ever 100 well, percent. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, while I'm bragging about going to 13 different casinos in the last several months, um, I have not put in 13 total hours at those 13 <laughs> right. casinos right. in visiting. Yeah, I get in. I mean, literally, you can you can obviously walk in. You don't touch anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you walk around, you observe, you might take a few notes, uh, get a sense of the scene, walk all the way through, and then you can just go. And I'm like, I'm my uh, my total for the 13 casinos, I was I broke even exactly with no no bets. I right. won like eight bucks at a exact at the uh, uh, Mammoth Park their first race when they came back. But uh, okay. a rail bird had given me a give me a tip and it worked out. But um, so yeah, poker. That's a good point about the length of time you're going to be there. Um, that's going to uh, turn some people off, right? You're not going to do it for 15 minutes. Doesn't make much sense. So, um, so Borgata again, it makes sense that they would have it. Um, they'll even get consolidated. Some of the players who usually go to the other casinos that have it will will gravitate to a Borgata. That should be a sufficient uh, amount of players there, and then that may make it not worth it for the other casinos to do it. But at least they're giving it a shot. And like I said, I think the industry was smart. They they went for some of the other ones. They figured out that they could do it, and then they um, also decided we can do a little poker and and. That makes sense, too. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, have been done wrong in a lot of different ways. But I think the casinos, uh, after some initial hiccups uh, around the country, I think in the Northeast have been have been really smart pretty much across the board. Yeah. And that's a great point about how uh, it's it's that much more worthwhile for Borgata if there aren't if they're consolidating the business that would have been spread around other casinos, which surely they are, um, and, and not just the other Atlantic City casinos, but um, if Parks isn't open, uh, you know, Parks certainly took away a lot of Borgata's poker customers over the last however many years. Um, so yeah, if if Borgata is is for however long until a bunch of other poker rooms do open up, if they're really the only live poker destination, and that only includes uh, probably not much in the way of home games. You know, a lot of people who used to go to casinos and play poker might have done, uh, you know, a day or two of, uh, a week uh, going to the casino to play, but also a day or two a week of playing in their home games. I don't know too many home games that have the plexiglass set up. Um, so, so there probably are not that many home games going on right now. So again, there's there are obviously a lot of reasons that uh, those poker rooms that do open up can do pretty well with it uh, at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, we uh, I think we've gotten to the to the right place we need to be. I don't think uh, uh, it's it's going all the way back anytime soon. Like you say, maybe uh, with the vaccine and all that, and then we'll we'll get get from there. But uh, it's just uh, it the things that may make poker so appealing in person, right? Are the same things that are making made it more difficult to come back. That's just how it is. Yeah. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. The 
U.S. election is less than two weeks away, and it's probably an understatement to call this one high stakes. In some countries, it is legal to increase those stakes for yourself by wagering on the election at sportsbooks. Not in the U.S., although a form of low-stakes wagering is available through a site called Predictit, but in countries like England, where our guest on this week's podcast resides, you can make sports betting-style wagers on elections. Albert Tapper is a former head of games for Betfair and head of poker for Ladbrokes, and he was Sporting Index's political trader in the 1990s. And these days, his thoughts on elections, politics, betting, and more can be found at alberttapper.blogspot.com. Albert, welcome to Gamble On. Very nice to be on your program. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no, thanks for joining us. Uh, excited to talk to you. So, much has been made here in the U.S. of the disparity between the polls and the betting markets for the presidential election. Most polls have been suggesting a Biden landslide, while the betting markets make Trump a very live underdog at not quite two to one. And then somewhere in between is a model like Nate Silver's, which currently says Biden wins 87 times out of 100. What are the factors that account for the disparity? And am I correct that you view the betting odds as a better predictor than the polls and models? I do. I do. And uh, I agree with what you're saying. Uh, you have every right to feel somewhat confused by the conflicting and disparate predictions coming from different quarters. I think this is probably easiest understood if we see political prediction as basically coming from three different approaches. Uh, the first approach, probably the least reliable approach, is what me and you uh, are doing now, talking as pundits, tipsters, right. experts, on what we think will happen. And we tend to play up the drama, sound decisive, but are usually the most deceptive. Uh, my advice to your listeners is that political news will make you dumber in your political betting decisions okay. because generally it's quite noisy. It's easy to get caught up in the volatile hullabaloo of an election. And, you know, the public uh, listen to the media and they, and they get this impression that it's extremely volatile. Uh, there's massive conflict. We're on the edge of a well-armed civil war in America. Um, half of California's burnt down. It's a picture of chaos and uncertainty. And uh, I think it's easy to get caught up in that hullabaloo. In, in fact, American public opinion, a bit like British public opinion, is generally stable, conservative, moderate. It sits in the middle. And it's really the elites on either side that cause all the noise. And it's a question really at this election whether the public in the middle go uh, towards uh, Biden or the populist candidate Trump. Um, so that's really the first the first way of looking at it, just looking at the news and, and listening to the commentators and the tipsters, uh, and the least successful for a punter if he adopts that approach. The second approach I would describe as, 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 as based on polling, academic models based on polling. Mm -hmm. Polls by themselves, of course, aren't a prediction. They're a snapshot of opinion at any one time. Uh, uh, academic models turn opinion polls into a prediction. And they take into account all sorts of factors, each one weighted with different importance and out pops at the other end an idea about the percentage probability of each, of each candidate. For example, Nate Silver would be an example of, of, of someone applying a, an academic model. And as you mentioned, uh, he thinks, I think it's currently 12% chance of, of Trump winning. Right. Then you look at 
the betting markets, which is the third alternative, where you're not really asking the public for their intentions as you are in, in a voting uh, opinion poll, uh, you're asking for their expectations as to what will happen. And when you do that, you're effectively drawing more information out of the public than you are simply asking how they're going to vote come November the 3rd. So that's the, the model uh, I prefer. But I, I would firstly caution some reliance on the opinion polls. Um, they've gone horribly wrong in Britain. And we've realized that the people who join the terribly dull opinion poll panels and fill in the online surveys aren't really representative of the general public. Uh, these aren't random probability surveys where every voter has an equal chance of being selected as a respondent. What the post-mortems after various polling debacles, particularly 2015 general election and the 2017 Brexit vote, mm -hmm. uh, came to were what they concluded the type of person who's prepared to spend 20 minutes filling in a survey for 50 cents has a particular leaning. And this worries me the most. I can understand why there is potentially sampling bias in the opinion polls, because your average Brexit or Trump supporter is less likely to sign up to a panel, arguably, than uh, a Remain or Biden uh, uh, supporter. Hmm. The, the third model, we're asking for the expectations of the public. And this is the best rack, track record in the last 10 years when you look at a British and American politics. Expectation polling does exist as a form of opinion poll, where instead of asking the public how they intend to vote, you ask them, what do you think will happen? Mm. And those models have proved much more successful, actually, than, than, than intention polling in British cases, particularly 2015 general election and also the 2019 election when Boris Johnson was re-elected last year. Markets work, political betting markets work, because a market price prediction, particularly on a matter of public interest, often draws up more relevant information from a wider range of varied sources than expert opinion can, essentially because it has more tentacles. The tentacles are the betters, your, your punters, now motivated by winning a game to think you know, harder about what will happen, largely ignoring emotion and their own prejudice, if they are good and going to win. In short, the many are smarter than the few. But the betting market isn't perfect. It has its biases. And a, rele a relevant one in a referendum on populism, which is kind of what the American, general uh, the American presidential election is, is it's essentially that Trump supporters tend to be risk takers. We know that from opinion polls. And risk takers tend to be gamblers. So you're more likely to find Trump supporters betting than Biden supporters. It's just in the general makeup of, of those two groups of voters. But more seriously, betting markets can be buggered not by the uh, players of the game, the punters, the bettors, but by the operator. And that's what I'm most concerned about. And that's what I think has been happening over the course of the last five years as we moved into this period of populist politics where we're moving away from the old left-right uh, spectrum and the way the politics is organised towards non-populist, liberal versus populist. And that everything has kind of changed. It's caused a lot of disturbance in, in, in a lot of the models and a lot of the, our understanding about what will happen. And I think what's been happening is that the political market makers, the British bookmakers, have all too readily taken the opinion of the experts, the pundits, 
and also the opinion polls over their customers, uh, which for me is a criminal sin because the bookmakers should be representing the wisdom of the crowd, getting at that all important insight that exists in betting. And insight's a really, really important thing for operators because it's a socially use useful function. Arguably, it's how so, uh, betting cracks social media, something it's never done historically. Uh, but if, you, if, if, if betting is delivering insight on the world around us, it suddenly becomes far more acceptable and also becomes far more marketable. We can run public relations, markets, campaigns around our political markets. Mm -hmm. uh, well, yeah. I, I want to ask about uh, the American uh, sentiments. You know, being from New Jersey, uh, I've spent the last 10 years hearing from people across the pond uh, asking about American culture and, you know, why were they so opposed to sports betting? Why was Congress against it? Um, and, you know, for me, uh, there's a big differentiation here where uh, I've mentioned before, uh, there was an illegal bookmaker in my neighborhood when I was growing up. Um, one of his sons became an illegal bookmaker himself. And, uh, we even participated in it as teenagers. So it was very commonplace. We knew that even though it was illegal outside of Nevada, that so, you know, quote, quote unquote, everyone did it. But I've never to this day heard of anyone I know who's ever said that they placed a, a illegal wager on politics. So I tend to think in my mind that, well, Americans, uh, A, don't bet on politics, and B, even if uh, it was legal, they wouldn't want to bet on it. So I'm wondering, um, you know, from your perspective on the outside, uh, are more Americans betting on politics than I, than I realize? And if not, will they be, you think they'll be receptive to it if it is ever made legal? Yeah, that's a great question, John. I think it's the ultimate question, the big question, as far as political betting is concerned. The reality is that political markets are tiny in terms of volume state compared to sports markets. Uh, even in Britain, and I doubt there's a, a huge amount of American money in the, in the, in the British Betfair market, um, the, the, the situation is, is 150 million has been matched on Betfair on the US presidential election, which is little more than a popular uh, game of IPL. Uh, Indian Premier League cricket. Um, sorry, I mentioned cricket. I should be talking about baseball. <laughs> That's all right. But, uh, it's, it's good to have a little a little change of pace with a, a cricket yeah, mention on the podcast. Yeah. It, it's quite important over here and very very big in India. Um, yeah, so what's what's really happened is that uh, the markets, uh, political markets, are small in size, but they're sufficiently liquid to generate insight. So my message really to the operators in the States is don't abandon your political markets just because you don't see a lot of revenue on them directly. You know, they have a really important function in terms of delivering insights and promoting the industry in favorable terms amongst the public as, as, as providing you know, a useful source of information at times when the other sources, the media, the experts are downing tools saying, I don't want anything to do with this U.S. presidential election. Uh, your president's in, in, in hospital. Uh, he's got COVID. Uh, it's impossible to make predictions, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's really important that, that uh, betting delivers that insight, that dispassionate uh, wisdom with a crowd insight uh, where uh, the elites are failing. So, yeah, the big question for me is really how we make political betting more interesting as you say John you know it's not it's not terribly popular um, and, and how, how we make 
something that is essentially about insight entertaining and that's a very difficult nut to crack and i'm not sure whether fixed odds is probably the way to go but that's a subject for another day um the key thing about political passing is it is it is all about pr i remember when i went for an interview uh back in 1997 i just finished working at sporting index i saw that the internet was the way forward and i wanted to get into it and i heard about mark blanford and his uh uh, plans to set up a company called sporting bet uh they were the world's first internet betting company uh so i trooped over to a tiny island off the south coast of britain called uh alderney and i had an interview with uh mark and uh he asked me said well we know it isn't legal over there in the States, but we want to have a crack. And how how the hell are we going to do it? How are we going to break into the US market? And in those unregulated times, my answer went down really, really well. You know, I said PR around political betting would be a good way in. Uh, And I thought then I got the job. I didn't get the job. Uh, (laughs) Although uh, he let me sign up there and then as a customer. uh, And I became the first customer of sporting bet customer zero zero one uh, which i think makes me the world's first internet sports betting customer which is a, a, a curious and slightly not, not not something to be hugely proud about but um uh, yeah anyway that that reminded me very much that although millions are being poured into the u.s by operators in, in, in the u.s uh, marketing the product now legally um that there is still an element whereby the political prediction markets are a useful source of public relations. Um, and I think the whole idea of political betting could be improved. There could be more interesting markets. We used to bet on how many sips of whiskey the chance of the exchequer in Britain would take whilst making his budget speech. And we're pretty certain with dear old uh, Kenneth Clark, who, who was a, st- a staunch whiskey drinker, that uh, he would take five or six sips during the course of a 60-minute budget speech. Uh, But we were completely flummoxed when Gordon Brown took over as Chancellor when Tony Blair came in in 1997, and uh, uh, we didn't realise he was a teetotaler, and he didn't drink a single sip. Um, But the public knew, of course, so we got hammered on that market. But it was great public relations, and it it made all the tabloids and, and, and all the rest of it. So I think with a bit of invention, you can make political markets interesting. Hmm. Well, I, I realize I did a bad job uh, introducing you at the start of the interview. I should have said the world's first internet uh, sports better would have been uh, a, a key credit to, uh, to to mention at the top. But uh, uh, so that it's still that's a pretty that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. Like I said, maybe not a badge of honor, but uh, still an interesting distinction. And so, you, so Albert, you mentioned uh, you know the the Trump's COVID diagnosis, um, and I, I wanted to ask you about that because Betfair temporarily took its odds down after that happened. Um, you know, of course, sports books take odds down all the time uh, with sports when there's major uncertainty, like a, a new report of an injury to a star player. You know, the odds will often come off the board until the book knows if he's playing or not. Um, was there any degree of wisdom in, in taking the election odds down while waiting to see if Trump's health was going to be a major concern? Or it, it sounds more like you would have advised Betfair to keep those odds up and, uh, and just let the public dictate the movement. Yes, they did originally take the market down because 
they wanted to protect their customers who had unmatched bets in the market, which was fair enough. And as you say, that happens regularly with sporting markets. If, uh, if some news comes uh, apparent that would affect the market, uh, then it will be taken down for a brief period. But it, this went on for days. Uh, uh, and it remained closed, you know, uh, for about three or four days. And, and, and the Betfair started putting out press releases saying uh, their thoughts were with Donald and Mrs. Trump and they didn't think it was appropriate to run the market. You know, and, and that was clearly disingenuous to a lot of people uh, and probably a mistake. It demonstrated their lack of commitment to political betting, for one. Mm. Uh, and an understanding of their role, you know, when we need them most, when no one else is saying what's going to happen, uh, that's when we need the betting markets. Uh, and to a certain extent, they lost their heads in the mellow like everyone else. Um, and I think if, if bookmaking can establish some credibility and show it's useful in predicting the course of, you know, not just the US presidential election, but COVID, you know, why can't we have betting on... Uh, you could say it's a very sensitive area, but uh, right. um, which way the death rates and the infection rates are going to go by area? We probably thought have more accurate predictions about the course of the uh, pandemic into the future than we get from, you know, your bog standard epidemiologist mm. or uh, political or health correspondent for the BBC. Right. That's a, that, that, that's definitely a, a hot take. And uh, I don't see uh, uh, COVID betting uh, getting legalized in America anytime soon. But, but just, just as uh, the point you're making of how it could be a, a telling indicator. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I think book, bookmaking is about prediction, not moralizing, you know. <laughs> right. the, stock markets, the stock markets didn't stop uh, trading when Trump went into hospital. Um, the bookmakers... Uh, out of their weakness, really, come flocking to the smell of progress like blue bottles to a dead cat. You know? <laughs> so it's a new and unlovely feature of uh, British bookmaking. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, want, I want to talk about scandal uh, to wrap up. Um, you know, about half the states in the United States still do not have legal sports betting. And because many legislators, uh, they think, well, I'm opposed to sports gambling, and if it happens, then uh, there's going to be all kinds of what you call match fixing. And you know, obviously, it's a naive uh, point of view. There is a huge uh, offshore illegal market anyway, and brick and mortar for that matter. Uh, and so, and we have had Pete Rose and the shoeless Joe Jackson white Black Sox scandal and college basketball scandal. So, obviously, scandals can happen, legal or illegal. But on the other hand, it's only a game. So. You know, uh, there's a lot of money involved. That's important, but uh, it doesn't affect uh, the average person's life. But if there were scandal in a political, uh, you know, election, uh, it, it feels a lot more weighty, more serious. And so I'm curious uh, if there's been any kind of uh, what you so anything related to match fixing in, in uh, political uh, uh, circles in the UK or elsewhere in Europe or anywhere in the world that really allows for betting on, on uh, elections. Yes, I can think of one good example where there were some allegations that were going to form a major Sunday Times, which is a big newspaper in the UK, exclusive on the Brexit referendum betting market. What happened there, uh, it was alleged, was that um, on the day of the vote, there was heavy support for Remain, who ended up losing Brexit won. Uh, but the idea was that uh, some traders, a bit like the Libor scandal, 
staked heavily on Remain on the day of the vote to send the foreign exchange markets the wrong way. Of course, the betting markets are less liquid, so they don't need a lot of money to move the market. But they do, as I've said, have this feature of, of being quite insightful. And a lot of people who were looking at the Brexit referendum and asking which way was this going to go, they were looking at the betting markets. And of course, so were the foreign exchange traders. So as Remain was backed, the pound strengthened because that was the effect of, of uh, that's what people felt would happen if Britain stayed in the EU, the pound would strengthen. Uh, and so these dodgy traders were busy selling the uh, sterling on, on, on the foreign exchange markets and buying it back later at a massive profit. I don't know, to, it's a bit of a conspiracy. I don't know to the extent uh, uh, that, 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 that it happened, but I think the best approach is if these things are brought to light by the operators themselves within a legal framework. And Betfair are very good in this regard, bringing to light cases of match fixing in snooker, tennis, and uh, other sports. When they see unusual betting patterns, they alert the authorities. Of course, if everything's underground and you're moving in the right direction here over in the States, away from regulation, we're, we're moving towards it. You know, so we're a slightly different situation. Uh, but um, yeah, I think um, that self-regulation within a legal framework provides a pretty st strong bulwark against corruption like we may have seen uh, during the election, uh, the, the referendum of 2017, where Brexit was 10 to 1, uh, Remain was long, long odds on. Mm. Um, and that caused a certain amount of confusion. I mean, the, 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 the lots of uh, legendary stories of match fixing in sport, uh, which I witnessed in my days at Sporting Index, uh, to a certain extent, for the very reason that, that, that the markets, political markets, are very good at drawing out information from anywhere, including illegal sources, does give you a very good idea on what's going to happen, even if that, that, that information is slightly nefarious. Oh, fascinating stuff. I, I, I really uh, appreciate your insights, Albert. There's a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff to think about there. And uh, obviously, we'll see, uh, we'll see in the next couple of weeks uh, whether there's uh, any, any controversy uh, awaiting us uh, with, with this election or whether we get uh, something, something clean and clear and settled quickly. But um, thanks so much for, for joining us here uh, on the podcast. Uh, really appreciate your time, Albert. That's a great pleasure. Thank you. Right, thank you, Albert. Two men, $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the Fast Five shortly, but first let's update our shared bankroll. And we were starting fresh last week, having somehow broken exactly even through our first 112 episodes. And that fresh start got off to an extremely rocky beginning. All of our new bets were losers. I tried a three-team, seven-point NFL teaser, and I proved you wrong, John, by losing two legs, not just one. <laughs> um, so we lost 100 bucks on that. 
You had Daniel Berger in last weekend's golf tournament, $100 for a top 10 finish and $10 to win it all. And he finished tied for 28th. So we lost $110 on that. And we lost another $110 on Notre Dame failing to cover 16 and a half points. I know you said you're reluctant to bet on them, uh, but my master spreadsheet tells me this is now the third time you've bet on them, uh, always to cover <laughs> as a favorite. Uh, and you've fallen to one and two betting on Notre Dame football. So I guess keep that in mind going forward. Um, anyway, we lost lost $320 on the week. Obviously, that puts us at minus $320. We also have $795 on hold in futures bets. We could use a Dodgers World Series win to jumpstart us. We'll see what happens there. Uh, but for now, we have $8,885 available to bet with, and you're up first this week, John. Well, spoiler alert, we have a couple of other futures that are looking pretty promising. So we got that going for us. Right. Uh, meanwhile, that master spreadsheet mention of yours, that sort of terrifies me for some reason. But, uh, <laughs> I was not aware of that, but uh, we can talk offline. Um, all right. So first time to get back to my core competency after weeks of uh, reaches and reaches. My PGA Tour win zone is phenoms or nicely priced to place in the top 20. That's that's my sweet spot. So give me $100 to win 120 on 21-year-old Argentinian Joaquin Neiman uh, at the California Zozo Championship this week. Uh, he's peaking as much as anyone at this time of year. There are several uh, Californians who are, are getting uh, worse prices and there's a lot of pressure on them. They're kind of home games. Uh, I think Neiman slips under the radar. No pressure whatsoever. Top 20. Even if he doesn't contend, he sneaks right in there. Okay. Um, I'm going to start with Thursday night football player props, not because I'm trying to recapture that 2019 magic, but because my Eagles are playing tonight and I have a pretty solid feel for this team and its skill position players, almost all of whom were on the bench or on the practice squad at the start of the season and are now in the games. Uh, add to the injury list this week, tight end Zach Ertz and running back Miles Sanders, though they are getting Deshaun Jackson back. And most importantly, they're getting Lane Johnson back. Hopefully for the whole game, we'll see. Um, anyway, the guy I like here is Boston Scott, the primary running back with Sanders out. He hasn't done much this season because he hasn't been asked to do much, but he killed the Giants in 2019, especially catching the ball. In two games against the Giants last December, Scott had six catches for 69 yards in one game and four catches for 84 yards in the other, and he also rushed for four touchdowns against them. This banged-up offensive line gives Carson Wentz almost no time in the pocket, so I'm expecting... Plenty of dump-offs to Scott and screens to Scott. So I have two bets here. Uh, over 21.5 receiving yards on FanDuel. Standard minus 110 pricing there. We'll bet 110 to win 100. And then Foxbet has a nice payout on over 4.5 receptions. If he catches at least five balls, that pays plus 235. I like that. So yeah. let's bet $40 to win $94 on that one. Nice. All right. So I'm going to try. And I noticed this in the SEC. Uh, Tennessee lost by 27 last week to Kentucky. Alabama beat mighty Georgia by 17. I think the transitive property play here of Alabama over the bumbling volunteers at minus 21 points, uh, 112 to 100. Okay, uh, I can uh, get down with the transitive property. Um, and uh, I'll finish with uh, two quick combat sports bets. I'm kind of cheating here and doubling up all my bets. But uh, on Showtime on Saturday night, the opening bout on a three-bout card looks to me like a 50-50 fight between Malik Hawkins and Subriel Matias. But Matias is priced at plus 225. So I want to bet $60 to win 135 on him. And then there's a big UFC event this weekend. 
I don't follow UFC at all, but I checked with our colleague, Brian Pempis, and he had a good long shot for me. Uh, Gaethje versus Khabib. He thinks Fox bets pricing on Gaethje to win a decision is way too high. It's plus 1400. And Brian thinks that is a realistic possibility. So let's just do a small bet there. $20 to win 280 if Gaethje wins on points. And we wrap things up with the Fast Five, where for the first time all season, I'm recapping with a smile on my face. I broke my streak of five straight losing weeks, and I gained some much-needed ground on you, John, as I went 4-1 and one and you went 2-3. and three. Uh, Our two shared picks, Steelers and Dolphins, were both winners, but I went 2-1 and one otherwise, thanks to a late touchdown from my favorite team, the Eagles, whereas John went 0-3, hurt by a late touchdown by his sort of kind of favorite team, Washington. Uh, Anyway, I hope nobody followed my advice to fade Raskin. It would have backfired last week. Uh, I'm up to an almost respectable 13 and 17 on the season. Uh, But John is still three and a half games ahead of me at 16, 13 and one. And I'm up first this week. And I have to say, I had a tough time with Westgate's line. Some of the teams I like this week are looking at less appealing lines at Westgate than at other books. But hopefully I found five I can live with. So here goes. I'll take the Panthers plus seven and a half at New Orleans. The Saints just aren't that great. Their last two games, they beat the Chargers by three and the Lions by six, and they lost their two previous games. Michael Thomas will play, but he's dealing with injuries. And the Panthers have made it pretty clear at this point that they're a solid team. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater will keep you in games. Straight up, he might be better than Drew Brees right now. Um, Anyway, seven and a half is a line I like. I'll take Carolina. Next, I don't think the Packers are favored by enough at Houston. They're coming off that dud against the Bucks. This is the time to buy low on them as just a three and a half point favorite. I expect to bounce back here as they try to prove that was a fluke. I think they'll win this one comfortably. Now, it's time to find out once and for all if I am or am not the Cardinals whisperer. Uh, I like that I'm getting the hook with them at home against a Seattle team that's due for a letdown game. Every other top, top team has had one already. The Seahawks remain undefeated but they're favored by three and a half on the road against an Arizona team that knows this is a huge game for their playoff hopes. Seattle keeps winning, but they're not blowing teams out. Um, If it was two and a half, I wouldn't take the cards, but at three and a half, I think they're a good bet. So I'm taking the Cardinals. Um, As with the Packers, I want to buy low on the Patriots right now. They're favored by two at home against the 49ers. The Niners got up for their must-win game against the Rams last week. Now New England at two and three and in third place in the AFC East is in must win mode. I expect post COVID Cam Newton will be better in his second week back. And Bill Belichick hasn't lost three games in a row since 2002. They're somewhat banged up, but the Niners aren't healthy yet either. Really Belichick is taking on his former quarterback Garoppolo. He will be extremely motivated. I'll take the Pats minus two. And finally, The Chiefs-Broncos game really feels to me like a case of a top team with a little something to prove against a mediocre team that doesn't have as much to prove after an upset win over the Patriots last week. The Chiefs did already bounce back from their loss to the Raiders, but they need to keep winning if they're going to get that number one seed and the only buy in the AFC. I'm a little worried about the backdoor cover with a nine and a half point spread, but My spidey sense is telling me this is that game where the Chiefs have it all their way and they get up by like 20 points and it's just never close. Uh, So there are my five not all that confident picks. I wouldn't be shocked if we have a head to head or two this week. Do we, John? Uh, Yes. And then some, as you'll Ah, see. Okay. Uh, Now, we went both went two and our 
two and zero in our blowout wins last week together. Mm-hmm. And you had the only blowout loss was the Packers. And then you hit your two competitive games, and I lost all three of mine. I think that bodes well for me. I, I if on the points bet side, I, I'm the winner <laughs> there. Okay. Um, so first. Um, Steelers minus one over the Titans. Uh, Blow win over the Bills is the Titans' signature W, uh, but otherwise they have not really impressed me. And the coach is great, quarterback is solid, the running back is out of this world. Um, but you know, losing your star left tackle is worse than the Steelers losing their star young linebacker. So I'm pretty confident in Steelers. And now here we go. Panthers plus seven and a half for Saints, if that sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Uh, my revelation this week was seeing how few of those signature wins are out there for most teams. Uh, and uh, even even two impressive ones I was having a hard time finding. Uh, instead of finding more teams like the Panthers, as you mentioned, who are consistently competitive. Um, also, uh, Cardinals plus three and a half for Seahawks. Mm. That trend continues, so give me the points at home, no less. Uh, it's one thing I would add. And then um, Broncos plus nine and a half for Chiefs. That's against you. Yada, okay. yada, yada, though. Um, backdoor cover, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> I'll, I'll be celebrating this one like the one you got from your Eagles, I must say. Um, and then finally, Patriots minus two versus 49ers. So we got three three the same and, and one opposite. Uh, so four of the same five games. Uh, the past now are two and three, but they're two and three against the spread. Uh, you mentioned the last time Belichick uh, lost three in a row, 2002. That's the same year that Pats had a losing full season against the point spread, mm. which is astonishing because <laughs> you're a defending Super Bowl champ. You're going to be you know, overrated, right? right? And you have a down year. And it happens to a lot of Super Bowl hangover things. They they cover the spread anyway. Uh, Richard Sherman's still out. Offensive tackle Trent Williams is questionable. Uh, Pats, I think, only had about three practices in 18 days heading into last week's game, and that showed. So I'm probably most confident in that one out of the whole thing. Hmm. All right. So it's interesting. Uh, you know, we are not touts. We are not recommending anyone uh, spend money on our picks or anything like that. But I'll just point out, uh, John is uh, five and one in our head to head picks uh, this year. So uh, there might be uh, a reason there if you're following the numbers to, to go with Denver, uh, if you're a listener. And the other thing is our shared picks were two and oh last week. We have three shared picks this week. So uh, there might there might be some wisdom in that. But again, we're not recommending uh, doing anything. It's your money. Do what you want. Um, performance is no guarantee of future results. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> All right. That'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Albert Tapper. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, you know, Eric, for years, as you know, there's been talk on social media of what they call first world problems, because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, who cares about this little uh, inconvenience? And the era of pandemic, it's that times 100. So let's get that disclaimer out of the way. Um, But I did have my NFL red zone package crap out on me right at 1 p.m. Eastern time, game time on Sunday. Um, Since I don't gamble that much money, actual money on games, it's not a disaster compared to maybe some of my neighbors. But, you know, but wait, my only local football game was Giants first football team, Uh, whereas you know it. I had the brutal beat. Uh, uh, Giants minus two and a half, but up by seven in the final minute. Team scores a touchdown with 36, 36 seconds left to force overtime. Where I still have a shot, but wait, wait, wait. The, the football team goes for two right. while down 20 to 19. And every Giants spread ticket on earth is done. Um, probably the two last two teams on earth that should go for two when they don't have to would be the Giants and the football team. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, um, so that was a bit of a suffer for three hours. But it also helped me reflect back, even being not quite 60, I'm getting almost to high school without even having cable television. So, you know, you had Channel 245. 
seven, nine, eleven, and thirteen, which is the worst because PBS tried to teach you stuff and <laughs> fell school. Um, and the best was a fuzzy UHF channel, like channel fifty, I think it was, that seemed to have movies with topless women that mostly were wiped out by a constantly recurring black and white fuzzy screen. Uh, simpler times, indeed. But I feel fortunate to expand the Joe Namath Jets title and the arrival of cable TV and the primitive Pong video game and even covering NBA finals in the early 1990s before the Internet was widely available to the public. Um, you know, sure, it's easy to be young and adaptable these days. So if Red Zone goes down, you quickly know how to go to a different live feed of the games on your smartphone at no extra charge or maybe even press your luck at an indoor sports bar, uh, to which I gave a hard pass. Not, not a consideration. Um, but, you know, it also was easier to be a mammal long after the dinosaurs were gone. I think it had to be a lot cooler to be a mammal at the end of the dinosaur age about 65 million years ago the crossover time so i guess now i am that mammal or maybe i am that dinosaur that sees the mammals taking over one of those a day without red zone scrambles the mind it really does um so enough of all that and until next time gamble on everybody